Welcome to Toward Wellbeing, a podcast that seeks to offer wellness information and explore solutions to wellbeing challenges faced by the legal community. I'm your host today, Nikki Irish, the Outreach and Education Coordinator for the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program. We're happy you're joining us today. As a reminder, we coordinate each podcast with a Washington Lawyer Magazine issue using the LAP column Toward Wellbeing as a jumping off point for a more in-depth conversation around the column's topics. The July-August issues column is called Only Healthy Leaders Can Create an Organizational Environment That Supports Healthy Employees. It was written by our guest today, Bisa Cunningham. Bisa has over 15 years of experience procuring wellness, employee assistance program services, and providing strategic oversight for agency-wide wellness and EAP services. She currently serves as the Director for Human Capital for the U.S. Department of State's Office of Inspector General. Ms. Cunningham is a member of the D.C. Bar Lawyer Assistance Committee. Thank you for joining me today, Biza. Thank you for having me, Nikki. All right, let's jump in. One of the themes I took from the Washington Lawyer article is that often characteristics that make good leaders put them at risk for mental health challenges. They often spend time supporting others but neglect themselves. And it's an interesting tension as a key component of leadership is leading by example. So in an organization, if staff does not see leaders taking breaks, prioritizing self-care, or even limiting communication during vacation, it doesn't give them permission to do so, regardless of what leaders communicate with words. I wonder, Biza, what is the cost to leaders and to staff? Thank you, Nikki. So before I get started, the lawyers at my organization want me to make sure that I give a caveat that the thoughts and information that I'm communicating today are strictly my own. I am um, neither representing the U.S. Department of State or the Office of Inspector General. I'm just representing Visa Cunningham and uh, my years of experience in human capital and diversity and inclusion space. Um, So specifically addressing your question, the cost is it leads to a cycle of burnout and ultimately the creation of a toxic work culture. There's this concept called emotional contagion. Um, It has to do with mirror neurons in your brain, which cause you to mirror or imitate the emotions of people around you. Dr. Elaine Hatfield, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Hawaii, has studied and written about emotional contagion extensively. So in a nutshell, the idea is that people frequently mimic their leaders including their leaders' habits, their moods, their values, all of which can impact and influence the people they lead. So if the leader is not emotionally healthy, not willing to take care of themselves, not aware of their own emotions, the people they lead pick up on those cues and either behave accordingly, so they too take on those unhealthy habits or they they rebel against it and are able to identify that these unhealthy habits don't align with their own values. The former types of employees are more likely to burn out and the latter are more likely to leave or become disengaged. In either case, productivity plummets and toxic or unhealthy and counterproductive behaviors increase. People are short-tempered with each other. There's an increase in sick days, a decrease in creativity, and the decrease in focus on the mission of the organization occurs. And all of those things, the negative aspect of all of those things has existed, right? And now it's only kind of intensified, I think, over the past several years. Exactly. So one of the other things the article talks about is, and I think this is interesting in terms of the mimicry that you talk about, is 
mentioning that leaders feel the need to put on this brave face, right? Appear to have it all figured out, which we know no one does. <laughs> We're all very messy human beings, at least I am. And you talk about resisting this, right? That there is necessity in leaders taking off their armor, of being able to give themselves grace and acceptance that they're human and like perfectly imperfect. So can you discuss a little bit why this is so important yet so challenging? Absolutely. I think leading with vulnerability and authenticity promotes mental health and encourages others to do the same. It's challenging because being vulnerable is scary. You don't know how others, including the people you lead, your clients or customers, your own leadership will perceive you. Will they see it as a weakness? Will they question your ability and your competency? Leading well or leading effectively requires people to trust you. Ultimately, I think it's challenging because being vulnerable may make you question if people will continue to trust you. There's risk, right? There's that fear and that risk. I wonder, you know, how do we get here <laughs> when the legal profession seems a bit slow to embrace it? And like, do you see this changing at all? So I think we get there first by understanding the data and understanding the times we live in. You know, there's a 2020 study published in a journal called PLOS One, and the participants, including the D.C. Bar, found that roughly half of practicing attorneys are experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety, with approximately 30% of those falling in the mild range, 20% being moderately or severely depressed. Um, in 2014, the American Bar Association identified that at least 25% of attorneys who are facing formal disciplinary charges from the state bar are identified as suffering from an addiction or mental illness, and that substance abuse plays a role in 60% of all disciplinary cases. And still, lawyers are among the top 10 professions for the highest suicide rates. We're also living in the time of great social change and great anxiety around health and finances. I don't know that the legal profession has a choice other than to change. I also think that with so many changes happening in the world, and I don't have the statistics for this other than the great resignation that's been written about in many places, I do think that people are seeing life and death in more stark terms and identifying that they want more out of life and what that more looks like for them. So I do think firms will see some shifts if they've not already in terms of the expectations of the people who work there. Expectations not only for themselves, but from their leaders. That unwritten contract of relationship will need to change to be more mutually beneficial for both parties. In the absence of that, I think the way we make change more expeditiously is by leading courageously. I think for those who are decision makers in, in your organization, you make the decision to invest in your own wellness and in the wellness of others. It's more than just about corporate wellness investments, such as on-site gyms or gym memberships and yoga retreats as perks or part of the benefits package. It is creating mindfulness spaces, mental health days, talking openly about mental health and wellness, being transparent as a leader, about your own struggles in a way that is safe for yourself, mandating counseling and or executive coaching as a prerequisite for professional advancement. People will embrace what the culture of the organization identifies as markers of success. So make wellness one of those markers. 
if you're not a decision maker, but you're an influencer, then I think you partner with your human resources or wellness professionals to help build the business case for wellness support in your organization. Identify what the leadership of your organization finds persuasive. If it's billable hours or an increase to the bottom line, then you have to show them, build a business case for how the bottom line is adversely impacted by not investing in the people of the organization. What are your lead statistics? What's the turnover rate? If your organization does climate surveys, what are people who work there saying about the culture of the organization? And what is your external reputation of the firm? And are you still able to attract top talent given that reputation? Those are all such important points, particularly that last one for all organizations, right? Big and small firms and nonprofits. It's that ability to attract and retain talent, particularly as you mentioned, right? This great resignation space that we're in. And the essentialness of it just for the ability to each organization to kind of continue functioning. So I really appreciate you kind of pointing that out and the challenge of it, right? It is so, it's hard to change. Like, let's be honest, it's hard to change. But one of the things that you mentioned in the article that I think is important is you gave these kind of talking points and ideas around helpful actions to ease some of the pressure of leading. And the one that resonated the most strongly with me and it's something I talk to clients a lot about is this idea of finding your people, right? Connection is so essential to our mental health and our well-being in all areas of our life because we're hardwired for it, right? We're pack animals. <laughs> so I wonder for you, what does finding your people look like? And you know, how have, where, how have you found them? And how have you navigated that over the past several years when we all feel more disconnected? Finding my people for me looks like creating a circle of trust. This is a group of people who provide me with varying levels of support in different ways. I can be my authentic self with them, and I can trust them to let me know not only when I get it right from a leadership perspective, but when I need to reassess, look at a matter differently, or do things differently. I've met these people in various walks of life. They include colleagues, professional leadership coaches, mentors, previous supervisors, members of professional organizations and members of my place of worship. In general, I do have a litmus test for who I let into the circle. They have to be uh, what I call battle-tested, if you will. I need to know that when my emotions get messy, they won't shy away from the mess. They're gonna grab some gloves and give me a hand, not leave me on my own to figure it out. I stay connected via video chats, check-ins, um, which are scheduled with my executive coach, less scheduled with peers, and through mutual connections. So outdoor walks, for example. Um, I, we, I recently participated in one of my circle. Um, we did an Alzheimer's hike. Such a wide variety, which I think is such an important point, right? You've kind of all walks of life is what you're talking about. You found them in all different ways. I just really loved your litmus test though, <laughs> um, because I think it's so important, the ability to be messy, right? Right. And to show up for the other person's messiness. Right. Um, but transitioning a little bit, another one you mentioned, another kind of tool or helpful point is engaging in the self-assessment, right? As a tool to ease the pressure of leadership. So why does self-awareness matter? How has it helped you? And are there any tools you have found particularly helpful? Sure. So I, I previously discussed emotional contagion and how the people you lead can both mimic and be impacted by your emotions. 
I think many of us have had a leader who, if they're having a great day, the entire office is having a great day. Conversely, if that leader is not having such a great day, everyone knows it and tries to either avoid the leader or mitigate or diffuse the impact if they've worked with that leader for a long time or know the leader well. I think as a leader and really as any individual, whether you're in a formal leadership role or not, whether you're in the workplace or not, has a responsibility to practice self-awareness. Self-awareness as it relates to wellness means gathering information about who you are and your emotions, understanding your various emotions. You know, Brene Brown actually has cataloged 87 different human emotions that she calls uh, the atlas of the heart. And working with a professional to understand those underlying emotions and to the extent that they are harmful to yourself and others and gaining tools to respond to those emotions in a healthy way. I currently work in the public sector and assessments are big in my field. So I've probably taken every assessment known to man. I like Clifton Strengths. I've taken DISC, Myers-Briggs. Um, I've also taken leadership training, including emotional intelligence. 360 and leading with trust, all of which have helped me to become more aware of my emotional state, my triggers, and ultimately, I think, understanding what type of environment I need to create to ensure that I'm operating at my optimal self. Mm. I'm letting that sink in for a second. I guess connecting to that, right, is talking about key support services. Is there one in particular that you would hope every leader has access to? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think the employee assistance program, I'm hoping that, you know, more workplaces, especially in the private sector, embrace free and confidential counseling by licensed professionals that can support the employee. The best employee assistant programs or EAPs, I believe, are those that provide support for your entire household to include spouses and dependents, which include children, adults, and other adults and parents. Connecting to that, right? Like, so employee assistance program, the lawyer assistance program also is set up very similarly to an EAP, just kind of not in the workplace, but through right bar membership. And all, most every state has some version of a lawyer assistance program. So go look for yours if you're interested. But what I would comment on is I just... I've been in this job for since 2010 and just there's a shift, but there is still such a significant barrier to seeking help, to accessing help because of stigma, right? So I wonder what you would want leaders to know and think about when it comes to accessing help for themselves. So I think many of us, if you've traveled, you know how when you're on a plane and they discuss the safety instructions prior to takeoff and They remind you that in the event of a decrease in cabin pressure, the oxygen mask will deploy and you should always be sure to put one on yourself prior to helping others. I think that's the model you have to think about um, to ultimately to drive the results that you want as a leader, which includes taking care of the people you're charged with leading. You've got to take care of yourself first. And again, once people observe you, doing that, they will model that behavior for themselves and it'll have a domino effect to have a more healthier work environment and culture. Yep. That's great. And I I would emphasize and kind of reflect back, right? We were talking about the EAPs and the LAPs that you don't, you can just be wanting to figure out how to take care of yourself 
because no one teaches this. <laughs> like, there's no one self-care 101 class we get in high school, though we should, you know, so it's okay to access the EAP or the LAP for those reasons. I think sometimes we think we need to be kind of desperately ill in terms of right down the progression before we access services. But really, right. we, I, I would love it if people were proactive rather than reactive in kind of this space. And I think that's what you're talking about is being kind of proactive. Yeah. It's almost too late if you're in crisis mode because then you're, you're just in survival mode. It's really something, I think, you know, self-care and wellness care is something that's an ongoing thing. It's loving yourself, falling in love with yourself again, and making sure that you're okay holistically, heart, body, mind, and soul. Yes. Something I, I heard the other day, I think it was from this author, Nedra Tawab, I could be getting this wrong, but is if you're doing this care at when you're in crisis mode, it's no longer self-care, it's aftercare. And I just love Great it. point. Yep. It's still important to do. We still need to take care of ourselves even when crisis mode, but it's a different type of thing, right? Yes. So before we wrap up, I want to ask kind of a large picture question and then around the space of kind of what do you think is missing from the leadership and well-being conversation? I think a, a discussion about mental illness. Um, I think sometimes when the leader has some mental illness that you know, and I'm talking about both diagnosed and undiagnosed. I think the tendency is if the leader is charismatic and successful, it's identified as an eccentricity. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's really taken seriously unless the leader or the organization falls into crisis. And even then, the focus is rarely on the leader or the people impacted. It's usually on the bottom line or the mission. Leaders are frequently seen as commodities through the lens of their impact on the organization. Their usefulness is tied to the health of the organization, not the health of the person. Mm. Humanizing leaders. Yep. And because it is both. It is important from a humanity perspective. It is important from a professional-like standard perspective in protecting the profession. And it's important from the bottom line. Like it can be all three and we can still work to treat them as human beings and kind of respect that a lot of people will have mental illness and mental health challenges. It's kind of a normal part of being human. Exactly. So to wrap up, to officially wrap up, is there a, a one book or one podcast that you would recommend for leaders? So I like Brene Brown's uh, Dare to Lead podcast. And I also, I'll sneak a second one in. I also like John Maxwell's leadership podcast that I typically listen to daily. That's awesome, which means I don't have to recommend either of those because you did. <laughs> and for me, what I would say is a book. I would, there is a book called Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. And I would just recommend it. I really recommend it to anybody that is listening because I think everybody could use it. But I think, right, leaders have a lot of pressure on them and they're much more likely to burn out. So it's a really good book that really addresses how to kind of manage our stress from the physiological responses that are happening in our body. And I just think it does it in a way that is very approachable and kind of like a lay person conversation. So, so Dare to Lead podcast, John Maxwell's podcast, and then the burnout book by the Nagasi sisters. How about that? Sounds great. <laughs> Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? No, thank you for having me, Nikki. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today, Viva. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think our listeners will too. 
And listeners, if you need help navigating this space, know that help is available. Please reach out, whether to your employer assistance program, whether to a lawyer assistance program, or whether to another just trusted individual. And until next time, take care.